The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. But uh, I'd like to introduce our next speaker now, who is Michelle Sim, who actually works here at the museum. And... Uh, She's done some uh, research uh, into the number one aerodrome construction squadron, which uh, doesn't get a lot of um, uh, publicity, so I think this will be a really fascinating topic as well. And we'll carry on. We may be a little bit later than our four o'clock in today, probably 10, 20 past or something, but um, uh, over to Michelle. Thank you, Dave. I'll do my best to keep it nice and short. All right, good afternoon, everybody, and um, thanks for the welcome, Dave, and thank you for having me here today. Um, I've followed the, the activities of the forum from afar for a while now, but um, it's a real pleasure to actually um, join you, and I just want to say thank you both to, to Dave and to Russell for organising today, and um, just acknowledge all the other speakers today as well. They've all been fantastic, and certainly a, a special privilege to, um, to hear from our two veterans today, so thank you both very, very much. So as Dave says, um, I'm uh, Michelle Sim. I'm the communications manager at this place where we are today. Um, I've been at the museum for just over 10 years now, most of which has been um, spent working in the archives as part of the research team. So some of you may have had some contact with me, um, even perhaps by email uh, during that time. So before I begin with my actual topic today, I thought I might just uh, give you a little bit of a brief overview of my background, of um, uh, just so you've got a bit of an idea of, of who I am, where I come from, how I got to, to be where I am and what I do. So um, probably the most 
common question I've been asked in my time here at the museum is how did you get to work here? Um, I think a lot of people are genuinely uh, intrigued maybe to see a, a woman working with a military aviation collection, although there are in fact several of us uh, here at the museum. Uh, for me though, it's been the perfect synergy between um, balancing my uh, career as a museum professional uh, with my affinity for the subject matter, as you'll see. Uh, I feel I can confess this in the present company, but um, I am a bit of an aviation geek. Uh, my colleagues uh, will be the, the first to tell you that I have a little bit of a reputation for um, posing next to aircraft, <laughs> which I always thought was a little unfair until I look back over my photos uh, recently to, um, as part of my sort of 10 year anniversary at the museum and I found with some embarrassment that yes, perhaps there were a few uh, too many photos of me posing with aircraft. This is only some of them. And as you can see in the bottom right, I'm already starting and um, indoctrinating the next generation. Um, those are my two boys with our sea uh, sprite here at the museum. Uh, so, when I was a kid, you know, I built, as, as all girls do, surely, no, I built model planes, I had them hanging from my ceiling. When all my girlfriends were reading Babysitter's Club at intermediate school, I was reading biographies of the Red Baron and Sir Keith Park. My dad took me to my first air show when I was six years old, and uh, I was hooked. Warbirds Iwanaka was a fixture of my childhood growing up in Invercargill. So these are some really rather terrible photos um, that my 11-year-old self took at Warbirds Iwanaka in 1994. I mean, I was just absolutely buzzing because my dad got tickets to sit in the, in the gold pass stand, so that was just the most exciting thing ever. Uh, added, to the fact, uh, added to this was the fact that my um, uncle, Buck Harrison, who um, I won't embarrass him too much, but he was sitting down here in the front, um, was a helicopter crewman in the Air Force. And uh, I love coming to stay with him when he was based here at Wigram um, with the three squadron detachment even. Uh, let us sit in the Iroquois and it was very exciting. I winched my sister up and down and it was, yeah, most exciting. So it was no surprise that I joined the uh, Air Training Corps as soon as I could um, and spent my teenage years soaking up all the opportunities that the ATC had, had uh, to offer, the highlight of which was flying solo after attending my power flying course at Woodburn. So it's me in the bottom right there. Um, and some of you may recognise uh, Padre John Neal, uh, wonderful, wonderful man. He, um, obviously, uh, he was uh, chief chaplain uh, in the, the RNZAF uh, towards the end of his career, but also... He was a, um, spent many, many years working with their training uh, corps cadets on these power flying courses um, as an instructor. Uh, so, fast forward through then six years at Otago University, a year and a half working at Otago Museum in Dunedin. Then when the opportunity arose to apply for a role here at the Air Force Museum, I grabbed it with both hands and haven't looked back. I found my background interest and knowledge in the subject matter has helped massively, but despite that, I'm always learning. In my six years working in collections and research, I was constantly surprised by the incredible depth of and range of material that we hold in the archives here. I was literally learning something new every single day. As I undertook research to answer public inquiries and catalogued all manner of fascinating collections, one of which, of course, I'm gonna to talk to you about today. I, I must say, though, it wasn't all fascinating when you've uh, catalogued Two uh, trolley loads full of obsolete uh, technical publications. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then you'll realise that museum work isn't always glamorous. Uh, these days, of course, my role is very public facing. Uh, I head the team which handles all the communications functions of the museum. This covers everything from the administration of our website and our social media accounts uh, to handling press releases and marketing and promotional activity. 
Um, so if any of you follow our Facebook page, and it's a bit of a plug, if you don't already, please do. Um, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, myself and my team are, are behind that. So it's a fantastic job and I'm lucky to work with uh, a wonderful team here at the museum uh, who are all incredibly passionate uh, about what we do. But anyway, enough about me. This is what you're really here for. So the main reason I'm here today is of course to talk to you about one of the RNZF's more unusual wartime units. The story of number one Aerodrome Construction Squadron, or Unit 24 as it was also known in the service, first caught my attention about six years ago when I was cataloguing the papers <coughs> of its commanding officer, Squadron Leader Eric Smart. We're fortunate to hold this incredible collection in our archive. It contains, among other things, three uh, files full of original documents relating to the unit's activities over the period September 1941 to March 1942, many of which are marked most secret. There are routine and administrative orders, nominal roles and casualty lists, memos and hastily written notes, as well as a good number of photographs, which together form a compelling story of this unit's remarkable experiences. I remember feeling quite blown away by the contents of these files, and it prompted me to uncover what else we had in the collection relating to this unit. Searching through our collections database, I identified a number of other prominent collections, including that of the squadron medical officer and the field records clerk, as well as miscellaneous papers and photos, so I set about retrospectively cataloguing these others. By the time I'd finished, I'd built up a fairly complete picture of the unit, the men who were part of it, and their experiences in Malaya and Singapore, which, as we'll soon see, is nothing short of extraordinary. What intrigued me most of all was the fact that, unlike many of the squadrons I was familiar with, this was purely a ground-based unit, and not even a particularly glamorous one at that. I felt their story deserved to be shared more widely, so I created an online exhibition for our website back in 2012. So this presentation that you're going to see today is um, heavily based on that, but you're going to see um, a whole lot more uh, images um, than, than what was on the original exhibition. Once it went live and was shared on social media, it astounded me how many people came out of the woodwork uh, to say that their father, grandfather or uncle was, uh, had been in that unit and they were fascinated to hear about um, the experiences in detail because, of course, like so many, they didn't really uh, talk about, um, about those experiences. Ever since then, the story of Number One Aerodrome Construction Squadron has remained close to my heart, which is why six years on, I'm very happy to put my archives hat back on and share their story once more with you all today. So what I'm going to do now is take you on a bit of a journey in the footsteps of the men of that unit. I'll be doing this uh, with the aid of photographs from our archives, supported by content drawn from um, uh, original documents. So essentially everything that you're going to see uh, is from our archives, just about everything. Okay, so the story begins in July 1941, when number one Aerodrome Construction Squadron, uh, or 1ACS um, in, uh, in brief, was formed as the first unit of its kind in all the air forces of the British Empire. With war clouds looming in the Far East, Britain became concerned about the need to defend their strategic naval base at Singapore. The Malayan Peninsula was seen as a potential backdoor area through which Singapore could be attacked. Therefore, more airfields were urgently required to strengthen its defences. A shortage of the necessary skilled labour and machinery, however, led the British government to ask New Zealand for a full unit of specially trained men to complete this tough task. New Zealand was in a unique position to help. In our public works department, we had a large pool of skilled and resourceful labourers and professionals who had been working to build roads, bridges, dams and airfields in the rugged backcountry. Furthermore, they had the machinery um, available to do the job. 
The call went out for volunteers for this new and unique unit. Engineers, surveyors, truck and tractor drivers, diesel mechanics, medical orderlies and accounts clerks were just some of the trades required. Important criteria for selection included good health and the ability to endure tough working conditions and living conditions in a tropical climate. With the more flexible age range, 20 to 50 years, with preference to men over 30, and the prospect of serving overseas, there was no shortage of applications from which to make the final selection. Following a month of intensive Air Force training and preparation for overseas duty, number one ACS was ready to embark. With their heavy earth-moving machinery safely stowed below decks, the unit sailed from Wellington on 13th of August 1941. And I just realised there's an error there that should read 41 rather than 42. After a lengthy seven-week stopover in Sydney due to, in part to an outbreak of mumps and measles, they arrived in Singapore on 27th of October. So uh, this is just a photo of uh, some of the officers from the advance party who, um, who uh, embarked for Malaya uh, slightly early uh, just to make preparations for the arrival of the main body, set up camp, etc. So you'll see that um, commanding officer Eric Smart is uh, second from the left, our left, uh, in the back row there. Uh, also, those of you who um, you may have heard of the engineering firm Elliot Sinclair, uh, that's Elliot Sinclair down in the bottom, bottom left. <coughs> so, the squadron wasted no time in setting to work on their first big job, the construction of an L-shaped bomber airfield at Tabrao in Johor, Malaya. Uh, now, I don't have a pointer that I can find, um, but that's basically the Tabrao is located at the, the top of those points uh, down at the bottom there. Yeah, that, that top one. <coughs> And here's some scenes from uh, Tibrao Camp. So Tibrao was situated in the middle of a dense rubber plantation. So uh, the first stage in building the aerodrome was to uproot all the trees and clear them away with bulldozers. Uh, so you can see that's exactly what's happening up in that top right uh, image over there. The ground was then levelled with carryalls drawn by tractors. Uh, and finally, graders were used to smooth out any rough patches and evenly spread the gravel laid down for the surface of the runway. It was hard physical work, especially when the heavy tropical rains arrived, regularly turning the ground into thick mud, bearing earth-moving machinery to the axles, as you can see in that top right. Field Records clerk LAC Frank McCarthy vividly described the busy construction site in his diary. To be out in the field when the work is going on is an awesome sight. The tractors and carryalls trundle back and forth along the dusty, shimmering runways. The roar of powerful engines shatters the stillness. The smell of diesel fumes is strong and pungent. The tractors look like moving ants in the distant haze of the receding runway. Quite an evocative uh, description there. Uh, and uh, here we've just got some scenes from... Um, uh, quarry that uh, the unit opened at a place called Bukit Lanshu. My pronunciation is probably a bit off, uh, it's my best guess. Um, so they were uh, quarrying uh, laterite, which um, I've discovered is a type of reddish clay soil that's prevalent in tropical areas and it basically turns to rock um, uh, when it's wet and hardens. So they were um, quarrying that uh, to use on the um, airfields. 
So by the end of November, the Tabrowse trip was well underway and a survey team was sent to mark out a site for another bomber airfield uh, at Bacock, 90 miles north of Tabrowse. So that's that top, um, top marker up there. Uh, a second party was dispatched to begin work on the strip. Um, so you can see here the earth-moving machinery trundling up the roads in Malaya. Um, and the guys on the right there having a snack by the roadside. It's quite a, a neat wee, um, wee picture. Uh, I think they're using their bayonets to, to skewer there, whatever it is they're eating. Uh, so here at Bacock it was oil palms rather than rubber trees uh, which needed clearing. The men soon discovered that these were home to some very large pythons which slithered out of the undergrowth as the trees were cut down. Sounds positively ghastly if you ask me. And the thought of uh, snakes slithering out there. Um, so the tractor drivers were now racing against time to get the ground cleared and levelled before the monsoon rains arrived in December, which meant long hours of back-breaking labour in the searing heat and stifling humidity. Frank MacArthur recalls, the tough and resourceful Kiwis simply adapted themselves to the conditions and kept on working in the heat, even in the midday sun. They stripped to the waist and sweated it out behind the controls of their roaring machines. They also adopted the craze too of completely shaving their heads, said it, um, said it kept them cooler under their toppies, or sun hats. Early on the morning of 8th of December, the members of one ACS at Tabrao Camp were awoken by the eerie wailing of air raid sirens at Singapore. <coughs> it was not until that evening, however, that they learned for certain that Singapore had been bombed by the Japanese. This had occurred virtually at the same time as the devastating attack on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, and the seaborne invasion which captured the northern Malayan airfield at Kotobaru, which you can see on the top right um, uh, where the Japanese flag is up there. Within two days, the Royal Navy's two powerful ships, Prince of Wales and Repulse, had been sunk off the coast of Malaya. Interesting personal note, by the way, my, um, uh, my grandfather's cousin uh, was a Royal Naval seaman on the Repulse and lost his life on that ship in, in this event. Uh, effectively putting both Allied fleets out of action, thus allowing the Japanese to proceed with their conquest of Malaya. Now more than ever, fully serviceable airfields were desperately needed in southern Malaya, <coughs> particularly fighter strips to accommodate the reinforcements which were on their way, allegedly. In mid-December, work at Tabrao was suspended and the unit was split up and tasked with several urgent jobs, including conversion of the bomber strip at uh, Bacock to a fighter strip beginning two further strips at Sungai Below, terrible pronunciation, uh, near Tenga on Singapore Island and on the site of the Johor Rifle Range. Others were sent to Singapore to help repair bomb-damaged aerodromes, while a salvage party was sent north to recover equipment from abandoned airfields in the face of the Japanese advance. This salvage party successfully recovered large quantities of valuable equipment, including trucks, cars, machinery and radios, literally from under the noses of the Japanese sending it all on a convoy retreating south to Singapore. With air raids occurring both day and night, and news from the front line grown increasingly grim by the day, it was clear to all members of uh, one ACS that they now had far more to worry about than the monsoon rains. Uh, so what we've got there on the left is uh, the daily routine orders issued for the unit um, on 8th of December, so the day of the first attack on Singapore. And you probably can't read it, but um, basically... It's uh, um, ordering um, that all personnel uh, will have um, will be issued with rifles and ammunition, um, and that they're all to carry their uh, gas masks and, and helmets with them at all times. Um, and then, of course, there was a welcome diversion uh, Christmas 1941, 
Uh, you can see over there the men um, having, having a bit of light relief, um, enjoying Christmas dinner at Tibrow in 1941. <coughs> so by 15th of January, the Japanese had made it to the northern border of Johor, and the order was given for Bacot camp to be evacuated. Demolition charges were laid in the runway and blown the next day, leaving the airstrip pitted with large craters to prevent it being used by the Japanese when they advanced. Um, sadly, I think I have read that uh, this didn't slow the, the Japanese down for very long. They basically just filled the craters in, repaired the airfields and, and used them because these, these airfields were all but finished. Um, uh, work had resumed in earnest on the Tabrau Strip in early January, but just as it was nearing final completion, the order came for it too to be abandoned and the unit to withdraw to Singapore. So that's where you can see the, the original memo that was sent to, um, uh, to Squadron Leader Smart. You can see he signed it there, seen and actioned. They, uh, they dragged... Oops. Uh, yeah, sorry, there's just a photo of the, um, of the evacuation of the unit across the causeway to Singapore. So you can see the, this is quite a famous photo, some of you may have seen it. Um, the, the dead slow sign is there because the, there were Royal Engineers um, under, the, under the causeway laying demolition charges ready to blow it um, as soon as everyone was over. Uh, yes, so they dragged trees over the runway to prevent enemy aircraft from landing and a small party was left behind to lay 24 mines in the runway to be detonated as soon as the order was given. Having stripped to Brow Camp of all equipment and stores so as to leave nothing for the enemy, the squadron withdrew to Singapore on 27th of January. They were the last Air Force unit to leave the Malayan Peninsula. Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, a small party returned the following day to explode the mines laid in the uh, Johor rifle range into Brow Strips. After enduring so much sweat and toil, it was crushing for the men to have to destroy the airfields that they had nearly completed. Nevertheless, the New Zealanders continued their work as long as they could on Singapore Island. A survey party had marked out yet another fighter strip at, and I'm just not even going to try and pronounce this, Yo Chu Kang near Salita, uh, which is over on the right-hand side of the island there, uh, despite there being no sign of the promised fighter reinforcements. So the unit continued to work on both this and the Sungai Below strip, which is over on the left there. Uh, as well as helping repair the existing aerodromes, all the while under almost constant attack. Um, so there you go, uh, that's a scene from um, the evacuation camp, which was hidden in the jungle in the middle of the island, um, and uh, there's some of, the, um, some of the men just grabbing a hasty, hasty lunch break um, as they're working around the clock to uh, repair the RAF airfields in Singapore, all while under almost constant attack. Um, very, very unpleasant. Uh, Frank McCarthy wrote anxiously in his diary on 31st of January 1942, huge breach blown in causeway early this morning. Siege of Singapore has begun. We are now building two emergency fighter strips on the island, forlorn hope. Within just a few days, it was plainly obvious to all that their work was in vain, as the runways were being destroyed by enemy action faster than they could repair them. The decision was made by RAF Far East Command to send the, send the New Zealand uh, construction unit to the Dutch East Indies, which is of course now Indonesia, to prepare new aerodromes there for a counter-offensive. On 1st of February, with Japanese artillery shelling from the other side of the causeway, uh, the men of 1 ACS assembled on the Singapore docks with all their equipment and machinery, ready to be lowered onto the SS Talthibius. Due to the daily air raids on the port, all the local wharf workers had disappeared, um, so it fell to the men to load their own equipment onto the ship. 
They quickly swung into action, manning the winches and stowing cargo in the holds, keenly aware that the quicker they could get the ship loaded, the sooner they could be away. They were forced to cease their loading work at nightfall due to strict blackout regulations, but resumed first thing the next day and continued non-stop until uh, the enemy bombers were right overhead. After 16 hours of work, the New Zealanders had loaded around 2,500 tonnes of equipment. Despite being bombed several times during that day, the Talthabias remained unscathed. All was just about ready when disaster struck. On the morning of 3rd of February, a working party was making the final adjustments to the cargo when there were two heavy air raids on the docks. During the second, Talthabias received two direct hits. The bombs exploded in the hold, killing the senior NCO in charge of the working party, Flight Sergeant Emil Gifford, and severely wounding seven others, two of whom later died in hospital. The ship was set on fire, and with holes blown in its side, water poured into the hold. Auxiliary pumps kicked into action, and by the next afternoon, the fires had been put out and the water had been controlled, although the ship was listing badly. A party of volunteers managed to salvage the men's kit bags, which contained their personal belongings, and the unit's medical stores, but much of the other cargo had been destroyed. The heavy machinery was undamaged, but frustratingly could not be unloaded due to a lack of steam to operate the winches. That afternoon, another air raid sealed the ship's fate, and it sunk, along with all of one um, uh, Aerodrome Construction Squadron's prize machinery and a year's supply of spare parts. The squadron was forced to return to its temporary camp in the centre of the island and anxiously await new instructions, while bombing and shelling continued all around. On 6th of February, with the situation looking increasingly hopeless, one ACS received word that it was to be evacuated in a convoy sailing that evening. The men struck camp in record time and raced down to the docks where they were split into two groups. The first embarked on the SS City of Canterbury, the other on a small coastal vessel SS Darville. Both ships wasted no time in moving out to join the convoy, but the Darville was ordered back to port as she had insufficient crew and was deemed too slow to keep up with the rest of the ships. Thus, the last convoy to leave Singapore sailed out that night bound for Java with a heavy naval escort, leaving the Darville and all on board to take their chances on their own. Protected by the naval destroyers, which warded off all enemy attacks on the convoy, City of Canterbury arrived safely in Batavia, which is now Jakarta, on 9th of February. The Darville, meanwhile, returned to port on the morning of the 7th, and the men were unloaded and taken to an RAF transit camp at Salita. The next afternoon, they again attempted to sail out of Singapore Harbour, only to return once more to port due to bad weather and poor visibility. That night, the men slept on the ship's decks and were again taken to the transit camp in the morning. During the night, the Japanese had landed on Singapore Island and were making fast progress eastwards. Their artillery began shelling Salita, forcing all personnel to take shelter in trenches. During a lull in the afternoon, the men clambered into trucks and made a dash down to the docks. With the enemy hard on their heels, it was now or never, and for the third time they boarded the Darville, which set out to sea at once. This time they successfully managed to escape, just in time to miss a heavy attack on the port. Frank McCarthy described the site as the Darville sailed out of Singapore on 9th of February 1942. Last view of Singapore, fires burning everywhere, big pall of black smoke spreading over the city, sky dotted with ACAC, puffs and enemy aircraft. Alone and with very little in the way of defence, the Darville presented an easy target for enemy aircraft. To help avoid detection, they sailed through the night and anchored at first light off a small island. They got underway again at dusk and hoped to clear a particularly dangerous area during the night, but unfortunately were delayed after stopping to offer assistance to another vessel. 
As a result, the Dava was still in the narrow waters of the Banker Strait when the day broke. Knowing that they were very vulnerable to attack from Japanese aircraft that constantly patrolled the area, the ship anchored amongst a group of small islands in the hope that they would not be seen. Unfortunately, a formation of 27 enemy aircraft appeared in the late morning and quickly spotted the small ship. What followed was a terrifying few minutes for those on board the Davil. With bombs raining down all around, the ship bucked and tossed on its anchor and splinters and shrapnel flew everywhere. The men could do nothing but try to shelter as best they could until it was over. One member of one ACS was killed as a result of the attack and 17 others were wounded, three seriously. Fortunately, there were no direct hits, but the damage to the Davil was severe and she was fast taking on water. The captain gave the order to abandon ship but to the men's horror, they found the lifeboats too riddled with holes to be of any use. Quick thinking and ever resourceful, the Kiwi construction workers set to work immediately to avert disaster. Some went below decks to plug the leaks with anything they could find, while others worked to repair the ship's damaged steering gear and lifeboats. With fires extinguished and leaks brought under control, the Darville, now under the command of a Royal Naval officer and crewed, la crewed largely by one ACS men, made it through the rest of the Banker Strait without further attack. It was a great relief to all on board when night enveloped them once more and the ship set a course for Batavia. The next day, however, the Dava was again listing badly and found to be sinking. Once more, the New Zealanders went below deck to plug more holes and brought the leaks under control. After a tense few hours, they limped into Batavia, barely afloat, at midday on 12th of February. <coughs> With the members of 1ACS reunited once more away from the war zone, there was finally an opportunity to snatch some rest, ease shattered nerves, and take stock of the damage. The unit had lost three men in the bombing of the Telthibius, with a further five wounded and left behind at the Queen Alexandra Military Hospital in Singapore, where they were later captured as prisoners of war, with a fourth man killed in the bombing of the Davil. Furthermore, they had lost all their construction equipment. On Java, the men were quartered at uh, Boitenzorg, where they remained for a week awaiting further orders. There was talk of them remaining there until they could be re-equipped with American machinery, but with the Japanese advancing on Java and invasion once more imminent, it was decided to send the whole unit back to Australia or New Zealand to reform and re-equip. So on 20th of February, the surviving members of 1ACS boarded SS Morella and sailed out of Java in one of the last convoys to do so without incident, arriving in Fremantle on the 27th. Owing to overcrowding of accommodation there, the unit remained on board Morella for five days until they departed for Melbourne. Unit medical officer, Captain Noel North, recorded his impressions on returning to safe shores in his monthly medical report. As this month closes, the unit is living on the SS Morella as she lies in the docks of Fremantle. The absence of the sound of enemy aircraft and of bombing and artillery fire is strange and at the same time very restful. I bet. After disembarking at Melbourne, one ACS travelled by train to Adelaide, where they boarded the MV Durban Castle, which finally carried them home to New Zealand. On 24th of March 1942, the Durban Castle sailed into Littleton Harbour. It was a cold and bleak autumn morning, but for the 155 members of No. 1 Aerodrome Construction Squadron, home soil was a welcome sight. It represented the end of an action-packed eight-month tour of duty, which had culminated in a dramatic escape from the Far East war zone. Upon their return, the commanding officer, squadron leader Eric Smart, ensured that his men were given due recognition for their efforts in Malaya and Singapore. He made the following statement in his report to the Air Department. The highest praise is due to all members of this unit for the way they conducted themselves at all times, whether during bombing raids, under shell fire, on board ship, in camp or on leave. 
They were a credit to the RNZAF and their country. They never failed to answer willingly a call upon their services and displayed initiative, which seemed sadly lacking in other units from Malaya. Um, and uh, over on the right there is, um, again, from Eric Smart's collection, is a, uh, a message sent uh, from Group Captain uh, Neville, Neville sorry, and Wing Commander Gibson at Air Headquarters uh, to Squadron Smart, basically just welcoming the unit back and con congratulating them for their efforts. Um, I think he says, welcome home. Oh, I can read it on here. Uh, yeah, following for Squadron Leader Smart, Officer and Airman of Number One Aerodrome Construction Unit. Welcome home, you have done a grand job and we are all proud of you. It's quite nice. So, that, uh, that concludes the story. Um, now, as I said, we have an incredible collection uh, relating to this unit. It's a very complete collection. Um, these are just some of the sources I used to, to um, compile this um, uh, exhibition or this presentation, but uh, we have um, a whole lot more as well in the collection. I thought that uh, this wee letter over on the, the right might be of interest to some of you. Uh, you may recognise the name at the bottom, uh, Ross, who compiled the official history of the RNZF during World War II. So that's the letter he sent to Eric Smart, basically uh, thanking him for loaning him his papers so that he could write, uh, do the official write-up for, for the official history, which um, is, is quite nice. 1950. And of course, here's my plug for our research team. <laughs> You're always, um, anyone is, is welcome at any time uh, by appointment, obviously, uh, to come and view any of this material. So either, you know, if you have a particular interest in the Aerodrome Construction Squadron or anything else, you're most welcome to come and, and view the, um, the archives in our, in our reading room there, uh, which has been uh, upgraded a little uh, since this photo was taken. We have a nice flash new white table instead of that old one. So Some of you may recognise Tony Phillips there, and then that's Dave Duxbury and his uh, trusty place down in the microfilm um, reader uh, at the end there. So, uh, yeah, the team welcome, um, welcome any inquiries. And if you would like a copy of, of the presentation, I'm most welcome to email you a copy. Um, I won't have all, all the photos in it, but it, it will have um, a good deal of them. So, yeah, feel free to, to drop me an email. I'm more than happy to answer any questions. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.